Bud Pombert. And today it's my opportunity to share a story. The Christian church in Bali, which is one of the Indonesian chain, which is the world's largest Muslim nation, the island of Bali is Hindu in contrast with all the rest of the chain. But there is a strong Christian church presence on Bali. It was begun when the Christian Missionary Alliance missionary came to Bali against the Dutch government permission. A few Balinese had become Christians by the time the Dutch colonial government caught on and expelled the missionary. The few believers that were left organized a church on their own. They built their churches to resemble Hindu temples in order to kind of ease the cross-cultural change when Hindus would become Christians and attend their church. As local Balinese became pastors, they developed a very ecumenical theological position. They have not formulated a set of doctrines, but say that the Apostles' Creed in the Bible is good enough as a guideline. Donna and I found the GKPB to be a church with a strong faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The Bible is God's word to man and the Holy Spirit as God's presence in our lives to guide and direct us. We felt very much at home and honored to serve them. Many members of the church struggled with unemployment and underemployment, especially since just before our first arrival there, the Bali bombing had taken place that killed hundreds in the city of Denpasar and decimated the island's tourism. Beyond the wonderful worship services, our ministry consisted of Bible study, music lessons, counseling, choir, women's retreat, home dedications, wedding, baptisms, the whole gamut. I was particularly humbled and instructed by one of the special families in the Balinese church, the family of a man by the name of Rus Alit and his wife Madi and their small son Peter. Their story was one of persecution, of murder, of ministry, of forgiveness and of grace. Roos was raised in a mountain village above the village of Tabanan. In 1965, Roos was on a neighboring island of Java when President Sukarno was overthrown by the forces of a little-known general by the name of Suharto. Suharto then led a cleansing campaign to get rid of all communists on Bali. However, he did not define the communist clearly, and so in the mindset of many villagers, the cross lines between communist and Christian were blurred. The result is of this cleansing campaign, many mountain villages killed Christians. In Rus Elite's mountain village, his three Christian brothers were taken out of their home, had their arms hacked off with machetes, and then beheaded in front of their families. 
their home and their property was confiscated. Roos did not return to Bali for several years, wisely. During those years, he worked for many organizations, including World Vision. When Roos finally returned to Bali, he purchased the stolen family property back from the village and began the creation of an echo farm and retreat. With the help of friends, he created a beautiful retreat with papaya trees, solar water heating, hydro surge pumps, and electrical systems, irrigation, natural fertilizer, multiple fruit trees, and on and on. When curious visitors saw how prosperous his farm was and how abundant the crops were, they would ask questions. Why is this so productive? And Roos unselfishly shared his knowledge and discoveries with real joy. He also founded an orphanage to rescue the children of many families whose poverty had forced them into believing they should sell their children for sexual trafficking. Roos also established, built, and taught in a village school. Many of these were in the same village that his brothers had been murdered in. He made small cement paths along the raging river so that villagers would not slip in the mud of the rainy season on their way to the rice paddies, fall into the rivers, and drown. He created hydro surge water systems for the villages, and the village ladies would weep when they realized that they actually got water in their village and did not have to go down a kilometer down the side of the mountain and back up again. He had done all this for the very village people who had murdered his family, as well as for other villages. What an impact his lifestyle evangelism had on me and on the entire area. Donna and I were visiting Roos and Mahdi at their retreat center when he told me one day that a village headman had been there the day before our arrival. This village headman was making arrangements for a, family's, a family member's cremation, which is a huge Hindu event and very festive. And he had many questions regarding Roos's knowledge regarding the whereabouts of the deceased woman's son. He then started to ask Roos questions about Christianity. Roos told him that a pastor from America was coming the next day, and he should return and question the American. <laughs> now, I am convinced that Russ did this not because he was unable to answer the headman's questions, but in order to give me the incomparable joy of witnessing this experience. He came to me unexpected and unannounced, Roos did, and said, Pastor, that headman is here now to ask you questions. I was caught off guard. I hadn't prepared. I didn't have my notes or anything, you know? We walked into a large porch in Roos's house, and there I met a man by the name of Putu Gede Diarte and his 13-year-old son who was also named Putu, whom I called Putu too. 
Putu was the head man of a mountain village of 70 families, as well as the head of the Hindu temple in his village, which was on his property. We, we chatted for a few minutes with Rus and Madi interpreting for us, and then I asked Putu if he had questions that he would like me to try to answer. I will never forget his answer. He said, and I quote, I have been a militant Hindu for 38 years, and here is only darkness, and here much heavy. Then he pointed to Rus Alit, and he said, this man have light. How I get light. I could hardly speak. Finally, after a long conversation, slowly and carefully seeking to tell Putu and Putu too about the source of Rus's light, Jesus, the light of the world, I was so concerned and felt that he had to understand the challenge of living as a follower of Jesus in a Hindu village with the village temple on his own property. Finally, with tears on my face and that of our translator, Rus, I prayed with Putu and his son as they entered the kingdom of light. I'm told by Rus Alit that when the headman in a Hindu village makes a decision, the majority of the village soon follows his lead in the same decision. Putu then, before he left, urged me to attend the cremation. Well, this was a very festive occasion in the jungle, and I was eager to see it, as was my wife. And so we went, where 12 who had died from the previous months in the village were being cremated. When we arrived in the jungle village for the celebration with a friend to interpret for us, Putu showed up, spotted me, came running up with his wife, Ni Ninga, and introduced her to us. He then eagerly and with a great, wonderful smile on his face that lit up the jungle path, said as he touched his chest, now here is light and here heavy still, but going away. <laughs> Parenthetically, Putu is now an elder of the Christian village church where he helped to found. The tropical beauty of Bali with its flowers and beaches and jungles and rice terraces is legendary. But what teaches me and impacts my life is the indelible example of Rus Elite walking in love among the very people who butchered his family. His life of forgiveness and gracious sharing and Christian discipleship and compassionate caring extended to these villagers was a life-transforming impact on my life. Amazing obedience to the Bible's direction to walk in love. This morning our scripture reading is from the book of 2 John. 
Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading the second John verses one to six in the New American Standard Bible. The elder to the chosen lady and her people whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth which abides in me and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, as we have received commandments to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. The word of the Lord. Now it is my privilege to introduce someone who did not want to introduce me, so I will introduce him. His name is Peter Sung. For those of us of Swedish attraction, extraction, attraction, I find his name most comfortable if I say it fast. Peter Sung. <laughs> pastor Peter is our much loved pastor who every day is seen running, even with a broken toe. And as soon as the police can find out who was chasing him, <laughs> he will be able to relax. We wait to hear from God's word and from our pastor, Peter Sung. Good morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I actually want to start out on a little bit of a somber note. Uh, yesterday, um, I visited Ross Lehman in the hospital. Many of us know Ross. He had a heart attack, and uh, he's in stable condition, but uh, it's complicated, and there are things going on. And so, uh, as I was sitting down with his wife, Lori, uh, we came up together with three prayer requests, and I want to pray that with uh, all of you together as a church uh, for this family. And I know that lots of things happen during the week, and many of us have ailings, but, uh, you know, a heart attack is kind of shocking. And uh, for me, when I heard that Ross uh, was going through this, the first memory that flashed into my mind was this uh, moment about five years ago, four and a half years ago, when Ross was sitting in my office down the hall there, and he confronted me in a really focused but gentle and loving way, as Ross does. And he had a comment, 
and a suggestion uh, about how I was handling uh, one thing that we were transitioning through in the church. And uh, in the moment, you know, I got a little defensive and I was frustrated and I wanted the conversation to be over. But it was a moment that God used to plant a seed in me and it became a truth uh, that grew and it's been influential in the way that uh, I was thinking and seeing and now executing uh, things uh, to this day. And so I will uh, always uh, thank Ross for that in my heart. And so uh, it was meaning there for me. Okay, I want to ask you to uh, close your eyes. And let's, uh, as we enter into the word today, let's just be aware and conscious of uh, Ross and all that his family is going through. God, we lift up our brother Ross to you, and in doing so, we also acknowledge uh, others who are uh, hurting, who have experienced uh, trauma, who are working through difficult situations in their life. Many of uh, those people are us. Somehow we made it here today, and so uh, we pray for that grace that you have for us to be uh, there for Ross, even now. Three things I want to pray as we, uh, Laurie and I discussed yesterday. One, we pray, God, that you would grant to Ross another season of life. Gift this to him and to us, we pray. And two, we pray that you would use this uh, incident in his life right now to bring healing and joy to the family. We know that families need healing that the system is sometimes rigid and unable to be affected and moved. But it's oftentimes like this that you use to decalcify and uh, find openings. And so we pray for you to do that, to bring healing and love and light into the relationships that you know about. And three, we pray for Lori that she would have great peace and perspective and power through this season. So we pray these prayers for the layman family and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Today we uh, start a new series in the books of 2nd and 3rd John. And the title of the series is True. And that's a dictionary definition in accordance with fact or reality. And the title of today's talk is, You Should Walk. Because you know walking is good for you. You should do it. I saw Tanya post it on Facebook. It's weird when somebody calls out your Facebook post because you put it out there for the world, but it's meant to be read, not heard. But Tanya posted one of her favorite activities is walking. Right, Tanya? Or is she upstairs? She's teaching. Okay. Let's talk about her for a second, shall we? (laughs) Walking is a good thing, but this little word, should, what's your reaction to it? How do you feel when I say should? You know what you should? You know what she should? You know what they should? Should. I want to talk about the validity and place of shoulds in life. Are they valid? Do they have a place? in our culture, in our time, with our values for you. It feels so archaic to sort of 
shine a spotlight on it. I know we use the word should all the time, especially about each other, but we kind of do it without knowing it. But if we sort of pull it out and deliberately sort of look at it, I just kind of bristle at it. John, the author of this letter, he was combating a docetic and Gnostic belief system in the culture. Docetic just means that they believe that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He never walked the earth as a human being, but he was made of pure spirit. We mistakenly identified him as a human being, but he was actually just spirit. That's docetic. And then founded on that docetic belief about Christ was a Gnostic belief system. And the Gnostics believed that actually because Jesus was that way, uh, we have the spark of Jesus, the divine, trapped in the prison of our material, physical bodies. And so the material world was evil, our bodies were evil, and therefore it didn't matter what we did with our bodies, so they lived however way they wanted, in every which way, they took advantage of pleasures uh, evermore, because they still believed the right thing, and that belief was connected to their spirit, the spark of the divine. They too were struggling to be set free and become docetic themselves. So this is the cultural system that John was trying to combat, that matter doesn't matter. And so in contrast, John proclaimed that Jesus, in fact, came in the flesh. We see this uh, in the book of John. We see this in the book of 1 John. We are going to see this next week in the book of 2 John. It's just uh, foundational thinking for him because uh, Gnosticism he was battling was founded on the belief that Jesus was only spirit. And so therefore, if Jesus came in the flesh and he walked the earth and he ate food and he felt cold and warm and he laughed and he had hopes and he had disappointments, he was very much real, just like we are real. And so John said that means that this thing you believe this belief you have, the thoughts you have, they have to be translated into the material world. You have to care about your body and what your body does and what you do to other bodies. These are really, really important. Truth, intellectual truth, spiritual truths have to translate an engagement with the material world. And this engagement with the material world is what John called love. Love. To love is to obey the truth that you believe you believe. And when you act on that belief, for John, that was love. And we don't have the freedom to just do whatever we want to do. Our feelings, our preferences can't be divorced from our actions. So he says, legitimacy and place of shoulds is absolutely crucial for us to understand. Now, we're going to get into the text in a second here, but uh, let me pause and just uh, share my reaction to shoulds in my life. This is how I used to feel about shoulds, and maybe you can identify with some of this. Now, after giving it a lot of thought, I came to believe that shoulds are no good. They're no good because they short-circuit the why. You know, it's sort of shallow and uncaring, and it's not really truthful. It's just partially truthful and maybe accidentally helpful, but I was more interested in the narrative. Why are you that way? Why do you do what you do? 
Why do you feel the way you feel? If somebody were to slap a shirt on me without asking about the why or the story, I felt like they were judging me. They were short-circuiting. You know, they were missing out on a better and higher value, the narrative behind my uh, life story, right? And uh, I remember hearing this phrase once, and I loved it. I loved it. The phrase was, don't shit on me. (laughs) That's right. You heard it in church first, folks. It just resonated with me, you know? Because shoulds I experienced as kind of external, but it wasn't internal. It didn't solve or address the real problems. For that, I needed, like, therapy. For that, I needed friends who would sit and listen For that, I needed uh, a more sort of intricate process, not just a should. You know, you shouldn't talk like that. Well, let me tell you why I talk like that. That's what I wanted. Uh, I also felt that shoulds uh, sort of uh, form a slippery slope towards legalism. You know, it's kind of a badge of honor. I do all the shoulds I know about, and then I feel better than you. I feel good about myself. But really, I think the bottom line reason why I didn't like shoulds is it was a threat to my autonomy. It was a threat to my intellectualism, my individualism, my consumerism, my right, my God-given, America-backed right to do whatever I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, how I want to do it. Now, I don't use words like autonomous or individualism when I'm reasoning things out. It's like I want to do it, and I will use that to do, to justify what I want to do. And isn't that kind of how we all are? We'll use whatever to do whatever we want to do anyways. But that was my reaction against shoulds for a season in life. Uh, I feel totally different about shoulds now uh, in my life. Uh, I believe now that shoulds are absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. I believe that shoulds form the foundation, actually, of the good and healthy life. That without a solid layer of shoulds in your life, a robust obedience to shoulds in your life, your life is not good. Your foundation is weak. You are unreliable. You are not healthy. I really believe this. I believe, with lots of evidence, that I cannot be trusted to my own devices. That my preferences, my gut reactions, my reflexes, my style, the defaults of Peter's song are no good all on their own unless they're augmented by shoulds. I believe now that shoulds define even what maturity is. And we've talked about this here before. If you've been coming here, you've heard me say this, that maturity has to do with shoulds. For example, a child who is not mature will feel like, will prefer to have a default style of melting down whenever they want. That's what children do. You know, so at the grocery store, in a restaurant, in the middle of a sermon, (laughs) they just do what they want to do. But that's okay, because children, by definition, are not mature yet. But what if an adult did it? What if I just was like, you know what? I'm done. Flip the pulpit over. 
walked out. I'm tired of fasting from alcohol for Lent. I'm going to go have a beer. That's what I feel like. In fact, I'm going to do it right now. That's immature because having a distinction between feeling and action, that wall that helps me to be a safe person is the should. Like, oh, I shouldn't do that. You agree I shouldn't do that? You agree I might want to do that? But I shouldn't do that? That's keeping all of us safe, you see. It's absolutely critical to maturity. That's what a mature person is. They feel what they feel, but they still do what they should do. That's also called discipline. And discipline and shoulds allow me to have sacred rhythms in my life. These sacred rhythms that tell me to spend time with the people I should spend time with that tell me to put down the thing I'm obsessing about, that tell me to do the harder thing or the non-preferred thing, to go to bed, to eat right, to be healthy, to be strong, to be available. These are sacred rhythms under which lie shoulds. And if it lies there long enough, It doesn't just stay as a should, but it begins to penetrate my nature. And at some point, it's not that I should do it. It's that I want to do it. And at some point, it's not that I want to do it. That's just me being me. Um, St. Augustine has this one pithy little phrase that I've attached to years ago when I was in grad school studying this. Uh, Adam and Eve, he says, were in the garden And they were in a place, in a theological, existential place where they were able not to sin. They were able not to sin, but they sinned. But they were able not to sin. And he says, on that final day when Christ returns and we see him face to face, and all the pretense and all the things that are false melt away, and all of our knees are bowed, and we see him as he is, and we are seen as we are, and we finally know truth and love and light, when all good and all light has penetrated our, our existence, at that moment, St. Augustine says, we will be transformed, to use Paul's language, in the twinkling of an eye to a place from able not to sin to not able to sin. You know, the Bible teaches that God cannot lie. He can't do it. God doesn't choose to speak the truth. He is truth. He doesn't choose to love. He is love. Because that's his nature. And God cannot contradict himself. And that's our future. We are going to have no shoulds in our life. So I appreciate my reaction against should. But that reaction is primarily about me using shoulds as a placeholder, recognizing that it won't always be that way. So I push up against it. But right now, it has a place in my life, a critical place in my life, because it's keeping me safe, buying time for me until I get to that place where I'm not able to sin, because my very nature has been transformed. Jesus spoke of shoulds in his life. Uh, He says that I only do what I see my father doing. 
That's an interesting sentence. Well, Jesus, was there other things you wanted to do? That's for you to answer, but that's the way the Bible puts it. Did he have a contradictory will to God's? And then again, he says, it is my food to do the will of God. Well, whose will were you going to do? Aren't you God? What are we talking about here? And then he goes even further in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, yet not my will be done, but yours be done. And then he taught us to pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. Jesus demonstrated a kind of submission in his life, a kind of obedience. He practiced shoulds in his life. I think one of the key distinguishing marks of a real Christian, a true Christian, somebody that you might call a born-again Christian, I think they're marked by the presence of authority in their life. There's a way uh, they honor and respect a voice beyond themselves. And I see that obedience in their life, and it causes me to want to trust them because I know that whenever there's a conflict between good and them, they're going to choose good rather than them, themselves. So, you know, I have four daughters, and my hope that is that they marry Christian men. And it's not because I'm religious. It's not because I want them to be, you know, uh, sort of relationally more, have more in common. That's not even the main reason. The main reason is, how can I trust that guy with the thing that's most precious to me? And what will allow me to trust them is that they will choose love, not because they feel like it, but because they should. They're comfortable with the authority that's in their marriage. They understand marriage to be a covenant, not primarily with each other, but both of them with God. And God's the one they serve. And God's the one who tells them to love one another, to prefer the other. And if they have that authority in their life, I like it as a dad. That's just my dad's heart. I'm just being practical. I'm not being theological here. When you have shoulds in your life, you are a safer person than without. Do you have shoulds in your life? How do you feel about this challenge to your autonomy and individualism and consumerism, the culture and its sensibilities? Is there such a thing as truth that's higher, better, truer, than your preferences du jour. Let's look at the text here. Uh, verse 1 through 6. I'm not going to read it again, but I highlighted phrases for us that I want us to study. Uh, first, let's get the mystery out of the way. It's not related to our point today. But John calls, uh, addresses this letter to the lady, the chosen lady. He says lady a couple of times. There's some theological like, conversations about this, but most sane theologians agree that John is calling the church lady. You know, it's just a feminine uh, you know, uh, name for the church, and the children are the members of the church. Okay, so let's get that out of the way. 
So verse 1, we see this little phrase, whom I love in truth. Notice the emphasis here. He doesn't just say whom I love because it's not the fact that he loves. The emphasis isn't that I love as if I know how to love, as if I am made of love. No, John is acknowledging that the I that's doing the loving is often insufficient to actually be loving. And so he adds that little phrase, in truth, whom I love in truth. Now, would you rather be loved by a person or would you rather be loved by a person in truth? Because a person, a lover in truth, is seeking your highest and best good at all times. They don't have a conflict of interest because where they're, when one presents itself, they're going to choose love rather than what they prefer. Their own private and personal view is not as important, doesn't take priority over what is actually love and truth. Truth and love. And then he underscores that because the next phrase, he says, not only I, but also all who know the truth. So it's not just one person trying to do the loving. It's not just one person asking the question, what is the truthfully loving thing to do? But he's turning to the hive mind. And he's saying, you know, I'm not sufficient my understanding of what's truthful is not sufficient. Let's get other voices in, in, involved. Let's invoke the village. Let all of us ask the question, what's really loving? What's truthful? What's right? What's good? What's wise? Which is the way that we should go? What do you think? What do you think? There's a kind of checks and balances here. There's a higher, bigger, greater wisdom that's being sought out. We see that in verse 2 again, for the sake of the truth. And then verse 3, in truth and love. And then verse 4, walking in truth. For John, love wasn't relative. It was personal. Love has to be personalized to the object that is being loved but it's not relative. There's a truth component to it. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians about love? Love delights in the truth. And so love is subject to a higher authority beyond one's feelings about what love is like or should be in this moment. There really is a kind of a hardness and a, 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 a substantial weight to love. It's a force. It's a power. Because love and truth means that it's willing to contradict you. It's willing even to cause you to walk away for a time if it means that you're going to learn a wiser, better truth. It's not insecure about the relationship. It's robust. It's love and truth. And then he switches up the language a little bit. Verse 4, he says commandment. That love is a commandment. That it's a should. It comes from a higher place. Uh, uh, higher authority. And then verse 5, commandment. Verse 
5 at the end, love one another. And then verse 6, walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. And then he sums it all up with our word today, you should walk. Now, example, uh, a couple of examples, and then we'll go to the application. Uh, marriage has been this commandment in my life, this presence of something that I thought I was doing, but it turns out it's doing me. It's big, way bigger than me. And I enter into this commitment. And I start wiggling, I start fighting, I start pushing up against it, I want to run from it, and that's precisely why it's a commitment. It's a commandment. It's larger than me, and it's forming me. It's a commitment device designed to constantly rebuff, contradict, defy, and annoy me until I break. How's that for a marriage sales pitch? <laughs> That's why you got to fall in love, I guess, because otherwise, why would you do it? Why would you do it? I'm telling you, every married person I've ever talked with, I've been interacting in intimate, self-disclosing ways with married couples for 21 years. I know every marriage secret I feel that they're ever is to know. And you know what? Every single human being that's ever been married has had escape fantasies. If your spouse is found murdered, you are suspect number one, statistically speaking. <laughs> you know why? Because marriage contradicts you. Marriage defies you. Marriage annoys you. Can we just, yes? And that's the point. That's the point. That you need this commandment in your life. You need the should of marriage. I had this incident with Susie this week. I groomed Bear, our dog, He's a non-shedding dog because two of our family members are allergic. And so uh, we have to, I would love to have a golden retriever, you guys, because we used to. And then after pregnancy, Susie became allergic. And so now we have this little poodle contraption thing. <laughs> bear, bear, bear boy, bear. And he's this little 16-pound mini dog. And uh, it takes me two hours to get him ready cut his hair and bathe him and dry him and getting, get him set up for the, you know, the next two weeks or whatever. And, uh, you know, I asked Susie, I said, Susie, I'm going to spend two hours doing this. She said, great. I said, would you do me a favor and clear out the counter and the kitchen sink, because that's where I bathe him, and do his hair? Would you do that for me while I'm cutting his hair so that I can bring him into the bath before he shakes or anything, gets hair everywhere? Of course I'll do that, Susie says, because that's Susie, right? But it was done so sloppily, because that's Susie, you know? <laughs> She's not here, whatever. <laughs> she contradicts me, I contradict her. It's a lovely arrangement. 
there still dishes in the sink, and there's like food on the bottom of the sink that I can't put bear into, and then I have to throw him outside, and then I had to clean, finish cleaning up the counters and the sink, which took another 10, 15 minutes. And then I had to call Bear back in and then get him in there. And I was annoyed by this. Because that's what marriage is for, I said. <laughs> and I said, do I have to spell it out? Can't you not? <sighs> I know. You know what? I keep telling stories and I keep losing every time. I should learn this lesson. So I said, do I have to spell it out? She puts her head down. She looked up. She looks up and she says, you know, I think maybe you should. <laughs> she said, I'm at peace with who I am because you also get a lot of grace from me. And so this comes with the territory. So next time you want something done a specific way, spell it out for me. You accept that about me, I'll accept that about you. <laughs> Boom, mic drop, she leaves the room, and I love her more, right? <laughs> True story, that really happened, that conversation. Gosh, she's annoying. <laughs> but ask me if I'm a better person after 20 years of being married to her. Ask me if I would give up the result of God using her in my life. Not for a day. Work. Now, I love work because I have seen over the years how God uses work to sanctify us, to make us into better people. Because at work, you get reviewed, and it's nerve-wracking, isn't it? You worry about how well you're performing, how you're being perceived by others. There's politics. You know, there's games you have to play, dances you have to do. Every day, you know, it's tricky. But you enter into it. You don't do work. Work does you over time. It forms you. It's the constant challenge, the should, the opportunity for God to help you be a better person. So honor your work. You can play the victim. You can complain. Or you can say, this is how God is using this work to help me grow. And I will embrace it. Okay, third example, church. Now, one of the uh, trends in our church and in, uh, in America, everywhere, uh, is this thing that we've called the opt-in culture. And primarily, as I did more research on this whole opt-in culture, two words that I've landed on that are at the heart of uh, the opt-in culture is consumerism and individualism. We believe fundamentally that we ought to do what we want to do. And what we want to do primarily is what benefits me. That's consumerism. That's the cultural value. That's the water we're swimming in. That's the air we breathe. That's all we know. And slowly we're the proverbial frog in the kettle. We've been in this temperature and this climate long enough. Now we've acclimated to it. You know, that's what happens in thermodynamics. Whatever, you know, objects are in contact, they want to reach equilibrium. They want to become the same. And that's happened to us culturally. Those are our default values. We do the math, and the math is, do I want to do it, and I will want to do it if I will derive personal benefit from it. And so we experience that everywhere. 
And lots of organizations, I mean, organizations like Microsoft, I'm hearing stories out of there, to churches. Everybody's opting in, opting out, and, and the leadership is asking the question, do we lower the bar? Do we just make it easier and easier for people to kind of engage, or do we raise the bar even higher and make the challenge? What's our play here? How do we get people to stop opting in and opting out as they themselves individualistically, consumeristically see fit? How do we get people to kind of ask the should question? Well, should I go? Should I participate and partake? Based not on what I would get or what I feel like, but contributing to the good of the group, maybe to honor the organizer, maybe just open to the universe being serendipitous in my life. I don't know, but I'll just do it. I can kind of move closer to commitment and closer to engaging because there are shoulds that are higher and truer and better than my preferences and my mood than the value system that the culture gives to me. Should there be a should? And it is my experience that these shoulds are calling us, inviting us into a deeper, richer life. Um, John uses this word walking a lot. And throughout his books, he loves this word walking. For John, here's what walking means. Walking is not the same as doing. For John, doing you can do once. But walking means that you're doing it over the long haul. It's a daily doing. Until it's not just about you employing an external technique, but it's your very nature being transformed by the doing. So that you're not doing via decision or choice, but you're doing it via nature. This is what Christian theologians call spiritual formation. That you are formed by it. And so when John says walk, walk in truth, walk according to his commandments, walk in love, he's saying you be love. Do it until it changes you at the core. It's formative. Therefore, be transformed. Walk. Now, I want to conclude here with two questions, and then I want to read a couple of verses and a poem. Okay, the two questions are, this, are these. Are shoulds possible in the absence of love? I spent uh, time with the um, retired community at our church this week, and they helped me come up with some of these concluding remarks. So credit where credit is due. Are shoulds possible in the absence of love? Would you do a should? Would you honor a should if you knew it came from a place of hate for you? Like they hate you, and they tell you you should do something. No, you wouldn't do that. What if you weren't sure if they loved you? Maybe 50-50. Okay, second related question. Are shoulds possible in the absence of truth? If it wasn't truthful, would you still obey the should? No, you understand at the heart of the kind of should we're talking about is love. God has every right 
and every obligation in a sense to give us these shoulds because he is love. If you love, you have to should other people. That's part of what it means to be engaged in the material world of humanity. It's from your heart and mind of love shoulds flow, and these shoulds are good and trustworthy. That if we know, if we know that the giver of the commandment loves us, has in fact died for us, then and only then do we know that there is no conflict of interest, that the commander of the shoulds aren't just using us, but they're actually saying something to us for our own good. And we know that because they died. And so we have Romans 5, 6 to 8. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love for us, his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I have a friend, he's a white pastor, and he is deep in advocacy for the African-American community. This is his gospel. He sees everything through the lens of racial righteousness, social justice, uh, focused on African-Americans. And he asked me this question. He said, how do you experience my advocacy? What's a, what's a piece of advice or comment you would make? Because you've known me as a friend and you've heard me advocate for the African-American community for years. What do you have to say? And I said to him, I said, I wonder from time to time what you're getting out of it. What do you as a white man get out of advocating for the black man? Why do you do it? What's your real reason? What's your reward? Because it's, you're making yourself into an easy hero, is what my cynical mind says. That if you're a white man advocating for African Americans, you, easy to be a hero. Oh, look. So I said, I want to know what's really behind it. The only way, if I were a black man, that I would 100% totally trust your motives for advocating for me as a black man is if you would die for me. Then and only then will I believe you because then I know you have no conflict of interest. You have nothing to gain because you're dead. And you did it for me. And that's what Jesus is saying that he died for us as a way to demonstrate his love so that his shoulds can be trusted. Hebrews 12 says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Shoulds in their proper time will have a payoff if they really do come from one who loves us. But in order for us to stay the course, to reap the benefits of the shoulds in our life, we have to trust the shoulds. And the only way we can do what we're supposed to do is if the giver of the command has died for us, and that he has done. Uh, John Lindbergh, if you know John Lindbergh sitting right here, he's... Uh, Kind of an older guy in our church, and I have so much respect and appreciation for him. He's a pontificator. He's got deep thoughts. And this was his 
final thought as I um, played out the sermon for him this week. He's so good. He can summarize my, you know, 37-minute sermon so far into one sentence. And he's, this was his summary of my sermon. Knowledge of duty done brings symphonies at midnight. Boom. <laughs> when you are able to trust, you are able to shed your false shoulds, the false shoulds that, shoulds that have kept you oppressed and enslaved and legalistic and cynical about shoulds and about the goodness of God. And then you begin to experience life-giving shoulds, shoulds born of love and truth and light and hope and future. What are the shoulds in your life? They are not burdensome. For this is the love of God that we should keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. As our closing prayer, I read a poem called Grace by Marilyn McIntyre and speaks of God's love, of God's commandments, of God's grace in this way. It takes you by surprise. It comes in odd packages. It sometimes looks like loss or mistakes. It acts like rain or like a seed. It's both reliable and unpredictable. It's not what you are aiming at or what you thought you deserved. It supplies what you need, not necessarily what you want. It grows you up. It reminds you you're not in control and that not being in control is a form of freedom. Lord, may you work sacred rhythms, joy and hope into our daily doing. Amen.